0: John, Eric, what do you know about the pop metal masterpieces
1: of the mid-1980s? What the hell is a pop metal masterpiece?
0: Welcome, dear friends, to Heavy Metal 101. On our last episode, we explored thrash metal's coming of age in the monumental years, 1986 and 1987. John, do you remember that? I do. Yeah, yeah, that was a good time. Today, we're going to be looking at that very same swath of time, however, via an entirely different lens. John, it's time to fill our devoted audience with intense rage, and to once again look into the oh-so-controversial
1: realm of
0: pop metal. Ah oh, yes!
1: Can I get a huzzah? No. This is one of those rare times where I feel like the audience and I are largely of the same mind. You feel similar rage based on our conversations. Well, I mean, rage is too strong an emotion. (laughs) I don't think this is metal, but we're going to talk about it. All right, all right. So mild irritation. Yeah, but but just sort of my constant state of being.
0: <laughs> so I mean I am keenly aware that from the perspective of many many people in the year 2023 none of the music we are going to discuss today will appear to truly qualify as quote heavy metal. I can practically hear the irate screams of
1: "Bon fucking Jovi? That's hard rock, you assholes!" from our listeners. John, I think you said something similar. I did, so I'll just make sure that everyone knows this is all Eric's opinion and Uh, not mine. I'm the asshole. Yes. Just so we're clear. Singular asshole. Okay, one asshole. One asshole. Good correction. And it's not me this time. Well, for the record, I hear you. I feel you.
0: Yes, you. And I both love and respect you. And yet, the simple truth is that the three albums we will be discussing today are quite literally the three albums that made me a metalhead. no matter what anyone wants to say about it now, including the artists themselves, at the time, these bands were most definitely understood as heavy metal. And no matter how hard any of these artists try to distance themselves from our most beloved of musical genres, the massive successes of the three albums we'll be discussing today played a huge part in heavy metal's massive rise in cultural import over the course of the 1980s. These bands, and heavy metal more broadly, were freaking everywhere in the second half of the 1980s, and the music under discussion today had a lot to do with that. So John John, working on that, you
1: like that? Not, no. You're going to find me a nickname by the end of this I'm, season, I'm just going gonna, gonna to keep spitting them out, out. Yeah. spitting them out. Spitting them out, see where we're at. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so these three albums, just
0: the three that we're discussing today, have together accounted for well over 50 million copies sold. Wow. Pretty impressive. And people like classic rock. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> motherfucker. So, a lot of people, myself included, are quite familiar with this music. Now, I know that you know and love Def Leppard, those rascally pop metal well, prodigies. That's the one you picked? Yeah. yeah of the three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? They're yep. like your boys. I'm genuinely unsure,
1: however. Do you know anything about Bon Jovi or Whitesnake or these McKeever
0: household names?
1: I mean, Bon Jovi, no. Even in my sheltered, sheltered life, mm-hmm. I could not escape all three of the songs you made me listen to from, from this album. <laughs> Every one of them. I, I knew them all. Did you sing along? I sang along with one of them. Uh, that must have been There were nice. three songs on this playlist mm-hmm. that you just can't not sing along yeah, with. Yeah, it's very catchy. One of them was a Bon Jovi song. Okay. Snake. I mean, so I know the big hit. Mm-hmm. That's one of my wife's favorite songs. You know? Oh, okay. Yeah. But I did not know the other songs.
0: For me, Bon Jovi's Slippery and Wet was just absolutely my fucking jam when I was a ten-year-old fifth grader living in Little Rock, Arkansas. I think that this was the album which pretty well kicked off my puberty all on its own. <laughs> so, there's no question but that Bon Jovi have long since distanced themselves from pop metal or <gasps> glam metal. Girls! 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 But there was indeed a time when they were the absolute super duperist stars of both of those movements. Bon Jovi toured in support of Slippery One Wet from July 14, 1986 through October 17, 1987. In order to provide some important historic heavy metal context, here is a bit about the bands they played with during that time. They began the tour, still, as just an opening act. The band they opened for during the Canadian leg were some dudes by the name of Judas Priest. Uh, now John, is Judas Priest a heavy metal band? Uh, yes. Okay, okay, just checking. Just checking. Yep. Next, we're going to muddy the waters a bit, because for the subsequent leg of that tour, they opened for the distinctly not-metal band, 38 Special. Fair enough. Nobody's perfect. Once Slippery When Wet hit number one, and they became headliners, Bon Jovi began with second-wave glam metal superstars and Bon Jovi protégés, Cinderella, as their opening act in North America, and Eric's most favoritest prog metal band of all, Queensryche, as their openers in Europe. When they headlined the 1987 Monsters of Rock show at Castle Donnington in the UK, the very metallic opening acts were Dio, Anthrax, Wasp, Cinderella, and this band called Metallica, who who I've actually never heard of, but who certainly sound heavy metal-ish, no? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, with all of this in mind, what do you think of Bon Jovi's apparent place in the mid-'80s heavy metal schema now?
1: Well, they certainly were associated with bands that today we still consider to be heavy metal. Okay, that's not nothing. Regardless, Bon Jovi circa nineteen. Oh, you thought I was going to say something
0: negative? No, I said regardless. I mean, I didn't disagree with you. No, no, you were good. I'll change the script and say, "Go, John." Perfect. Let's yeah. start every paragraph. with that. <laughs> Go, John. Yeah,
1: I feel like it feels good. It's nice. Yeah, like an look- affirmation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you look, you look happy. Yeah, I feel happy. Good. good. Well. I I think Bon Jovi, circa 1986, they were fucking awesome. Just a lean, mean pop metal machine. And slippery when wet was most definitely every bit as monumental to pop metal as Master of Puppets was to thrash. And so I think we owe it to ourselves and to our devoted, lovely audience to learn us some Bon Jovi history. John, take my hand. We're off to my beautiful birth state. Oh my God, he's taking my hand. Oh, I don't like it. I didn't like it. It sounded better when I said it. I didn't like it at all. (laughs) I feel dirty now. (laughs) I need to talk to Heavy Metal 101 HR. (laughs) We're off to my beautiful birth state. A state of gardens, diners, and mafiosi. We are off to New Jersey. Enter stage left. One John Francis Bongiobi, Jr who was born on March 2nd, 1962, in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and spent his formative years in lovely Sayreville, New Jersey, which is not at all far from my own ancestral home. In fact, I remember chatting about all this with my grandmother many moons ago, who said, oh yeah, the Bon Jovi family, I remember them. Nice people. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's adorable. I always thought that was really sweet. John Sr. was a barber, while his mother, formerly a Playboy Bunny, was a florist. It's like the salt of the earth, no? It's about
1: as salt of the earth as
0: New Jersey can. (laughs) It's very very Jersey, if nothing nothing else. else. A barber and an ex-Playboy Bunny turned florist. Yeah, Perfect. The very basic outlines of the Bon Jovi story are as follows. John spent his teenage years flitting in and out of a zillion local bands, including, in 1977, the unfortunately named Atlantic City Expressway. This band, however, included future Bon Jovi keyboardist, who was then named David Rochbaum. He is now, of course, better known as David Bryan. That's a big leap. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, things really started percolating in 1980. John's cousin, who of course was named Tony, was co-owner of a music studio. Little Johnny B availed himself of this connection, cutting a recording of a single he had written called Runaway with local studio musicians. It's a great song. It would eventually become something of a local sensation when John re-recorded it in 1982 with the group he dubbed The All-Star Review, which is another shitty name. not great, <laughs> yeah.
1: So far, over for 2.
0: As the story goes, Runaway won a local radio contest in 1983 and became a regional summer hit that year. It also eventually went on to become the lead-off track and first single from Bon Jovi, the band's self-titled debut album from 1984, which brings us to said eponymous-ish band. Enter stage right, Bon Jovi the band. The success of the song Runaway got John signed to Mercury Records, and he proceeded to put a band together, which consisted of... Our good pal, David Bryan on keyboards, a bassist named Alec John Such, and a drummer named Tico Torres. At first, Bon Jovi worked with John's former neighbor and childhood friend, the future Skid Row guitarist, Dave the Snake Sabo. But by the time they were ready to record, the classic Bon Jovi lineup was completed with guitarist Richie Sambora. John, how exciting is this? We've assembled Bon Jovi's classic lineup. Okay. Woohoo! Now a huzzah. Huzzah!
1: Woo!
0: Bon Jovi released two very solid, if not totally remarkable albums prior to Slippery and Wet. The self-titled debut was released on January 23, 1984, and it managed to crack the Billboard Top 200, peaking at number 43 on the strength of some very good, though not yet perfectly polished, blue-collar pop-metal tunes. It really is a perfectly swell pop metal album, though probably the most fascinating thing about it is that, it rather confusingly, it contains a song called Shot Through the Heart. Mm. Despite the familial resemblance, this song actually has no relation to future Bon Jovi
1: mega-hit, You Give Love a Bad Name. John, I assume this clears up what has long been a source of confusion for you no? I have been so confused about why when I play the song mm-hmm. Shot Through the Heart, I don't hear, Shot Through the Heart! Right, right. I thought you would be. Uh, now I'm not. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Bon Jovi's excellent second
0: album, 7800 degrees Fahrenheit, was released on March 27, 1985. Now, for those of you who might be curious, 7800 degrees Fahrenheit is the melting point of rock. Anyway, Bon Jovi wasn't blowing up or anything yet, but this album did creep just a bit higher, peaking at number 37 on the charts. It did go platinum in 1987, but that most certainly had something to do with the fact that by that point, Bon Jovi had completely and utterly, and deservedly, taken over the world. Which, of course, brings us to this tiny little album called Slippery When Wet. John, what do you know
1: about Slippery When Wet? I do actually think I owned this album. Ah, Really? I think so. Oh, God. I mean, as a CD, because I'm not ancient. Right. But but I did own it. That's exciting for me. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I'm of good about this. Uh, look, I think... I would just... think that it would diminish the value of it, <laughs> quite frankly, given yeah. my musical track record. It's pop metal. It's popular. It's supposed to
0: be accessible. Okay. Even idiots like you are welcome to the party. Aw, it's yeah. inclusive. I appreciate that. Go, John! <laughs> it's good. It, feel, it still feels good. Good, good. Still working for us. Uh, look, so I think it's very important that we try to get ourselves a sense of the gravity of this moment. The biggest legacy song on this album is, of course, Living on a Prayer. Mm-hmm. A song which, incidentally, was very nearly left off of the album. However, while Living on a Prayer is indeed an iconic jam-jam, my own introduction to Bon Jovi was via the first single, You Give Love. A Bad Name, which basically marked the very beginning of my own lifelong journey towards heavy metal enlightenment. With this song, and with its then omnipresent accompanying music video, we are peeking into ground zero of what just 35 short years later would emerge as Heavy Metal 101! John, shall we pause the podcast, hold hands, which we tried and failed to do, so maybe we don't do that. To
1: be clear, we held hands. We, we did, did hold- We didn't fail at that. <laughs> You just felt <laughs> deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. It made me sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> like a weird sweaty. <laughs> yes, I
0: have that effect on people. Right. Fair enough. Well, shall we at least watch the music video in rapt silence? If Let's nothing else? do. Okay. Everybody else, pause the show, click on the link in the show notes, and you too can watch the video. Maybe hold somebody's hand, maybe uh, don't. Y- your choice. I leave it to your discretion. We shall see you regardless on the other side. you've now experienced what it would have been like to peek into a window
1: directly into the soul of 10-year-old Eric. How do you feel? It was a lot less masturbating than I was expecting. (laughs) Uh, That's
0: fair. That's fair. You Give Love a Bad Name was the first single released from Slippery When Wet on July 23rd of 1986, which is about one month prior to the release of the album. It hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart on November 29th of 1986. Bon Jovi's first, but certainly not last, number one hit. This is one of four songs on the album featuring a co-write, along with principal songwriters Richie Sambora and Jon Bon Jovi, from Bon Jovi's not-so-secret weapon, songwriter Desmond Child. For the record, the other three Child co-writes include a wee little ditty called Livin' on Prayer, and two comparably less known but great tunes, Without Love, and I'd Die For You, the latter of which, incidentally, was my favorite song when I was a ten-year-old budding pop metalhead. John, he's come up once or twice previously on this show. Do you know anything about Desmond Child? Nope. Yeah, didn't think so. Shall I tell you? Sure. Oh, good. Child briefly had an R&B group called Desmond Child and Rouge back in the 70s, but really spent his career as like a song doctor type writing or co-writing hits for a vast assortment of artists, starting with Kiss's I Was Made For Loving You in 1979. Yay! For a time, he was particularly closely associated with glam and pop metal, and he helped a lot of older bands like Aerosmith, Kiss, and Alice Cooper to find their 80s pop metal groove. Okay, back to Bon Jovi. What do you think of the video? I mean, sure. It's fun. Yeah. It's like... You're at a concert, but you're like really close. You see the band real well. The explosions, the sound sure. is good. Yeah, there were boobs at one point. The, yeah, your hey, boobs are good. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Would you agree that it looked like kind of like a pop metal video? Like does that seem? Yeah. Really good? So
1: I mean, definitely have the visual aesthetic that we discussed. Though it, it was prompting me to say maybe we should have a little, just a brief refresher, if you're willing, mm-hmm. as to what the sort of musical characteristics that makes something still feel like metal, even in this pop vernacular. Right.
0: I mean, when so when we think back to what the definition of heavy metal is, we're dealing with a electric, distorted guitar mm-hmm. as sort of the basis. We're dealing with power chords strung into riffs. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with usually sort of powerful tenor singing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're dealing with a lyrical content that is either macabre, which it was in a lot of the early stuff we talked about, or sort of generally antisocial. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I think, can reasonably be cast in that. And especially when you're dealing with pop metal and glam metal, a lot of these sort of cheeky sexual puns Mm -hmm. are going to come up. And to my mind, Bon Jovi certainly fit all of those requirements just with a really polished pop sound while simultaneously doing all that other stuff. So whether you really desperately wanna see it as hard rock due to the proverbial heavy metal inflation that occurs over the years, the, the fact that now heavy metal is just generally much heavier than it used to be, is okay, I get that. But to me, it certainly fits my idea that I grew up with of heavy metal. And in fact, as I already mentioned, it was the music that first drew my attention towards
1: the genre. I mean that's fair, and that that's why I asked for that little refresher. Mm-hmm. I think it's just to me in listening to this music, it's not even that it, it is not as heavy as heavy metal is today, because I I think your new favorite fr- phrase of heavy metal inflation is valid. Mm-hmm. But Andrew but, O'Neill coined that. Great, great comedian slash heavy metal writer. Good to give credit. Mm-hmm. To me, it's almost like the vocals. And the choral quality of a lot of this music covers up even the the guitar-distorted power I chord sound. I would also, not to, uh, to you know argue against myself, I'd also point out the
0: keyboards yeah, as being a lot something of that definitely softens the edges. I mean, as it did with Deep Purple, you know, with the organs back in the day. Uh, yeah, Bon Jovi as a heavy metal band, all the bands we're going to talk about today as heavy metal bands, are problematized. Like, they all have things that make it so they don't perfectly comfortably fit into metal. So it really becomes more of a cultural thing. Like, was this part of the heavy metal scene? Do the people who listen to this music, are they people who mostly listen to metal? You know, I would say that there's probably two types of Bon Jovi fan. There's the people who just are pop music fans who've never cared for heavy metal. And then there's a large swath of us that were okay with the softer side of heavy metal, you know, or fifth graders. (laughs) For people who are younger than me, especially, I get it where this just doesn't sound enough like heavy metal to count. It's just that back in the day, we all thought it was heavy metal. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm still talking about it. Okay. It's your show. I like it so much that I refuse to let it go. Well, about this video particularly, it's nothing terribly fancy. This, as well as all the others from the album, I think they do a really nice job of conveying that special brand of joie de vivre, which make Bon Jovi so damn likable. I mean, how can a person not like Bon Jovi? It's like not liking kittens and puppies. Bon Jovi are like pop metal
1: kittens and puppies, no? Sure, Yeah, they're fun. You don't dislike them. No, I don't dislike them. I also wouldn't really go seek them out. Ah,
0: so for your playlist, I did not do anything fancy at all. Despite the fact that I think every song on Slippery Row and Wet is genuinely great and all of them merit a close listen, I put You Give Love a Bad Name, mm-hmm. Living on a Prayer, mm-hmm. and Wanted Dead or Alive, the mm-hmm. three most famous songs yep. on the playlist. That's kind of how I'm going with these pop metal yeah, episodes. Yeah, sure. Um, the these were, I already knew. Yeah, these all were three all songs I already knew. Okay, yep. good, good. I love every song on the album, including including those rather overplayed but wonderful singles. In fact, When a Dead or Alive is my go-to karaoke number. Oh. Yeah. Now, frankly, serious metalheads are probably going to want to beat me up for saying this, but I think that this is a perfect album. <coughs> In pop metal circles, the only albums that come close are Van Halen's 1984, and Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction.
1: Are we going to talk about them? Yeah. Oh, great. I know, you're going to love them. I get to look forward to an episode. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, that's going to be fun. Oh, great. Go, John! (laughs) This episode is looking up. We're having such a fun time. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to just spend a few minutes chatting about some of the specs for this Titanic pop metal masterpiece, and then we're going to move it along to the next pop metal masterpiece. Does that sound good? Sure. So... Bon Jovi's magnum opus was recorded in beautiful Vancouver, Canada, at Little Mountain Studios with super producer Bruce Fairbairn, rest in peace, at the helm. Now, I don't typically get into the weeds of discussing sound engineers. Bullshit. (laughs) But for this album, it's worth mentioning that it was mixed and engineered by Fairbairn's protege, future super producer Bob Rock which, so far as I was able to ascertain, is actually not a stage name. Wow. I know, I was surprised. Suffice it to say, there were some heavy hitters behind the scenes in the making of this album, which was released on August 18th, 1986. Now, John, do you recall what you were up to on that particular late summer Monday back in 1986? You know damn well <laughs> I was not alive
1: in 1986.
0: Now, I, meanwhile, was just a few short months away from my 10th birthday. Aww. Yeah, I was probably riding my bike, probably sweating. Good times. Anywho, Slippery When Wet spent a cool eight weeks at number one on the Billboard Top 200 chart and, as of this writing, has sold approximately 28 million copies. That's pretty good. Including one to John. Think. Think. one to me. And yeah, one to me as well. I think two to me, actually. Cassette and uh, CD. Nice. Aside from the four Desmond Child co-writes I mentioned, all the songs were written by John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, who, no matter how much shit a certain segment of the population might want to talk, some talented frickin' dudes. John, I hate to leave Bon Jovi behind, but we must be moseying along on our pop metal journey. Do you have any questions, comments, or thoughts about these fun-loving New Jerseyites from the poppiest corners of the pop metal universe? No, I'm ready to go. All oh, then off we go. On to the next phase of this deliriously delightful tour through Adolescent Eric's cassette collection. It's now time for some serious phallic imagery. Now, how does that sound to you? Less good. White Snake,
1: baby. White snake. It's a penis, John! Did you get it? Penis! Penis. Is that what they were going for? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's white snake. Yeah.
0: Well, on a forthcoming episode of our newest podcast, Penises Well, <laughs> <aware. laughs> we'll obviously need to investigate all of this further. Okay, I digress quite badly. Deeply. <laughs> Very far afield. <laughs> so, Whitesnake and David Coverdale, who for all intents and purposes is Whitesnake, they just happen to always put me in a terribly cheeky mood. Shall we move this along and actually talk about some music? Yes, please. Alrighty. So I fucking loved Whitesnake. I, like many many others, if album sales are any indication, was absolutely obsessed with the self-titled album from 1987. And like many an American adolescent in the 1980s, I was absolutely shocked back in the day upon discovering that this band already had a vast back catalogue, Seven Albums Deep, when they unleashed said self-titled pop
1: metal masterpiece upon the masses. It was unusual to be seven albums deep before getting to the one. The self-titled one? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Well, John, shall we go back in time and discuss the early history of Mr. David Coverdale and his White Snake? This whole next 30 minutes just gonna be penis jokes? Maybe one or two more at most. Okay. Now, for this one, I'm definitely going to need some of your patented time travel noises. Just beautiful. So David Coverdale, the hero of this tale, was born on, as the British would say, 22 September 1951. In what I can only imagine was the absolutely delightful town of Saltburn-by-the-Sea in jolly old England. And that sounds quite pleasant. It does no? sound idyllic. Yes, yes. Coverdale was already singing professionally by the age of fourteen, but his big break came in 1973 when he happened upon an article in the weekly British music magazine Melody Maker mentioning that the band Deep Purple would soon be holding auditions to replace iconic Mark II singer Ian Gillen. Coverdale got the gig, and Mark III Deep Purple released an excellent first album featuring Coverdale's vocals, "Burn," on February 15, 1974. So, John, are you a big
1: Mark III Deep Purple guy? I think you should be really, really proud that I remembered that you labeled the Deep Purple bands as Marks. Oh, good, good. This is not my innovation, but rather a convention, but but still. you know, fuck convention. (laughs) (laughs) That title track,
0: Burn, actually might just be my very favorite Deep Purple song. The whole album is actually pretty awesome, but things started to fall apart pretty quickly with its much less hard-rocking follow-up, Stormbringer which was released on November of 1974. After that album, guitarist Richie Blackmore left to focus on his new band, Rainbow, and Mark III mutated into the incredibly... Rainbow. Yeah, you a remember Rainbow. Rainbow. It's all good. So see how everything's connected? The well. webs? Just spinning webs. Mark III mutated into the incredibly short-lived Mark IV, with Tommy Bolin taking over on guitar for 1975's very unpleasantly titled Come Taste the Band. This would be Deep Purple's final album prior to a Mark II reunion nearly 10 years later. So, David Coverdale now found himself all footloose and fancy-free come 1976.
1: That's the most positive way to say unemployed (laughs) I've ever heard. (laughs) And he briefly pursued a solo career, releasing a first album titled Dun Dun Dun,
0: White Snake, in collaboration with future White Snake guitarist Mickey Moody in February of 1977. He released one more solo album in 1978, but was already putting together the band called Whitesnake by that time. The band released a first EP, the very, very not heavy metal Snakebite, on June 2nd, 1978, and a rootsy, soulful, British blues rock band was off and running. I'm not going to spend any more time on this early history of Whitesnake, except to say that they were always really successful in Europe and Asia, and always relatively unknown in the U.S., And that over the course of Whitesnake's early career, a number of other Deep Purple alums and associated musicians did some amount of time in the band. Now, John, this is a lot of information. Are you, like, adrift and
1: overwhelmed? I have fully tuned out the last (laughs) ten or so minutes.
0: Okay, I swear to you, I'm about to get to the heavy metal portion of this discussion. Whitesnake's backstory really is shockingly dense, and I, personally, I remember being wildly confused when I first dug into their back catalog as a kid and picked up the album Live in the Heart of the City which was from 1980. Now, this was profoundly not metal, but it definitely grew on me. Early Whitesnake is really quite good, even if it has little familial resemblance to the music we more usually discuss on this podcast. This sounds like an aural version of Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Things, however, began to take a turn for the band in late 1983. They recorded the tastefully titled Slide It In in the midst of some serious lineup changes. First off, bombastic drummer Cozy Powell replaced Ian Pace... Nay of Deep Purple. Guitarist Mickey Moody did complete the recording, but then decided to leave the band shortly thereafter. As such, when Whitesnake's American label, Geffen, demanded a remix that would be better suited to American tastes, a new guitarist, former Thin Lizzy shredder John Sykes, was brought in to record all new guitar parts for the U.S. version. The bass lines were also re-recorded for the American version, which began White Snake's process of taking some really big steps into glam metal territory. Following that release, White Snake toured the US, opening for Quiet Riot and later Dio, and the album hit number 40 on the Billboard charts. Not too shabby, but much, much greater achievements were on the horizon. Now that's a lot of fucking preliminaries. I need a stiff drink, but I also need an extended musical break. So we're gonna do something a little different for this break. Yeah, you see, one of the fun things about Whitesnake that they started doing on their 1987 self-titled album was to take older songs from their back catalogue and to rework them into cutting-edge glam metal rockers. This, I think, allows for a really clear way to illustrate how very different 1987's glam metal version of White Snake was, sonically and visually, from the earlier blues rock White Snake. And so I've got us not one, but two videos for everyone to watch. The first is the original 1982 version of the song that would become a number one mega hit in its 1987 version Here I Go Again. Oh. Yeah. The 1982 version is from the album Saints and Sinners. After you watch that one, you can compare and contrast it with the much more well-known 1987 video. Both links are in the show notes. Hat tip to the beautiful love goddess that is the dearly departed Tawny Katane, prominently featured in version 2.0. John, are you ready for this wildly instructive audio-slash-video break?
1: Let's go. Do it! goes to epic commercial or something but (laughs) like well it kind of makes sense
0: it's like here i go again i i still got it Uh i may be old (laughs) and firm (laughs) fuck all right john
1: what have you learned dorothy what have i learned yeah what have you learned there's certainly two very different presentations of the same sentence yeah yes (laughs) basically yeah we're honest about the lyrical content of this song two sentences (laughs) um here i go again on my own. Like Here I go a again. Hobo! <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's the first thing we should talk about. And thank you for being clear in mm-hmm. your diction. Yes. Mm-hmm. In listening to it, I was unclear what <laughs> that third letter in that word was. Right, And right. then uh, in the second revised version, it's drifter, which makes it clear what the word was in the first round. I will
0: tell you right now that the reason that it was changed was because David Coverdale was concerned
1: about the potential ambiguity... Of the third letter, I'm glad. I'm glad that he made it clearer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wondered, actually, in listening to it without any knowledge, if it was changed specifically for that word. Yes, although although I also
0: do think the word hobo is pretty old fashioned and kind of like antiquated, whereas the it word I mean, drifter you, if you do sort of works. picture
1: someone like. Sitting on a train car with like a uh, stick over their shoulder yeah. with a bag tied like to a, the end, with piece a piece of wheat sticking out of yeah. their mouth.
0: Like it's just not—it's not state of the art.
1: Let's it's say not that. very heavy metal. Right,
0: right. Drifter though, right. fucking metal is shit. Metal as shit. Drifters are just satanic serial killers. Every one of them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Sorry to the drifter community <laughs> listening to this <laughs> podcast. All right. uh, I do.
0: All right. Let me apologize now to our to our drifter fan base. <laughs> You're not all satanic serial killers. It was just a bit. Well, I'm of the opinion that the particular combination of audio and visual here really does do a great job of illuminating the difference between a no frills, bluesy, hard rock band like White Snake in 1982, juxtaposed with a shiny, glam metal look and sound found in The White Snake of 1987.
1: Look, I'm not usually a big music video guy. Mm-hmm. I did, you know, I grew up I think when MTV was past its prime. Quite right. Frankly, so right. music videos don't have a big impact for me, but I have to say, in what is a perfectly good song? Mm-hmm. It's a great song. Good I'm song, not saying it's a bad song. Yeah. More engaging with a video. It's an engaging video. It's I a, it's I mean, a it's good a video. video. The song fun. is better with the video mm-hmm. because quite frankly, while this is again one of the ones that made me sing along cuz how can you not? Right. You also kind of have to sing along because, again, there's two sentences. <laughs> well, so obviously,
0: it could be argued that there's something maybe over polished, maybe a little synthetic about 1987's White Snake, but goddammit, do I ever love that band and the entire self titled album. Uh, now, speaking of synthetic, you're gonna love this. It's probably worth noting that aside from David Coverdale, and kind of, sort of, guitarist Adrian Vandenberg, who did play the guitar solo for that 1987 recording, not a single other person in the video we just saw actually performed on the album. So, Were they just
1: actors, or were they <laughs> no.
0: people from a... Uh, we got a story. I have a story to
1: I tell love you. a story. Okay.
0: Well, so first off, it's worth noting, Coverdale referred to the lineup that we just saw as, quote, the vid Kid." To be clear, the lineup that actually recorded the 1987 self-titled album was David Coverdale, lead vocals, John Sykes, guitar and backing vocals, Neil Murray, bass, Don Airey and Bill Cuomo, keyboards, and Ainsley Dunbar, drums. Ooh, John, I will give you $10 million if you can tell me in what way Ainsley Dunbar is an Easter egg for serious HM 101 fans. We mentioned him long, long ago, specifically in relation to you to me yeah
1: ainsley dunbar my dad
0: (laughs) i don't know is he
1: (laughs) holy shit
0: (laughs) this is breaking news okay so i'm not going to tell you now i'm going to say extra credit and an on-air shout out to any listener who can draw the early hm 101 connection between john and ainsley dunbar Operators
1: are standing by.
0: So Coverdale fired that entire band after they had finished recording due to the proverbial personal differences. It had been a really fraught, challenging recording process. The VidKids lineup, who importantly were also the touring band for the album, these were real musicians, they were guitarists Adrian Vandenberg and Vivian Campbell, formerly of Dio's band, bassist Rudy Sarzo and drummer Tommy Aldridge. Of course, I think we can both agree that the MVP for the 1987 video was the lovely Julie E. Tawny Cattain, who would become Mrs. Coverdale just a few short years later, and then oh. ex-Mrs. Coverdale just a few years after that. That tracks. Yeah. How did you enjoy Miss Katane's contribution, John?
1: Uh, I mean, she did a great job. Other than ruining the whole sort of sentiment of the song, I mean, <laughs> literally the entire text is "Here I go again on my own." He's never on his own. Is she he? is there the entire fucking time. Well, may her memory be a
0: blessing. Okay, so we could do an entire fucking season on the complex craziness that went on in and around the recording of White Snake's self-titled masterpiece, but I've written up a Cliff's Notes-esque synopsis for you, John, to read. You ready for a little HM 101 roll reversal? Let's go. All right, story time.
1: Once upon a time, the band Whitesnake had completed the touring cycle in support of their Slide It In album as a group in a state of near-complete collapse. With that lineup falling apart around him, founder David Coverdale very nearly packed it in and called it quits, before being convinced by his label to at least stick it out with his new guitarist Johnny Sykes. And so, in the spring of 1985, Coverdale, Sykes, and bassist Neil Murray, the only other slide-it-in era holdover, relocated to the south of France, as you do, and began to work on songwriting for a new album. Ooh, I've got a fun fact, Eric. Would you like to hear a fun
0: fact? John, I have been waiting to hear you ask that question for what seems like a lifetime. Yes! A thousand times yes! Please
1: tell me a fun fact about heavy metal. The ballad, Is This Love?, which was written during those sessions was originally penned for the late, great Tina Turner to perform. When label head David Geffen heard the song, he decided that White Snake should hold on to it, and indeed, became a massive hit for the band. Well, gosh, that indeed is a fun fact.
0: R.I.P. Tina. We love you forever.
1: Thanks for sharing that, John. You're welcome. Continuing on, the trio eventually left the paradise that was the South of France and relocated to the hell pit that is Los Angeles in order to find a new drummer. Eventually, they hired my favorite drummer in the world, the great Ainsley Dunbar. With the lineup now complete, the band headed to a familiar location, Little Mountain Studios in Vancouver. Now,
0: John, was that the very same studio where Bon Jovi recorded Slippery When Wet? It
1: sure was, Eric. And although the album was produced by Mike Stone and Keith Olsen, Bob Rock does once again make a cameo. It was Rock who worked, uncredited, with guitarist John Sykes to develop his guitar tone for the album. However, all was not Sunshine Roses and Poutine in Canada. While the band worked on the recording, Coverdale was struck down by an intense sinus infection, which eventually resulted in surgery and a lengthy period of vocal rehabilitation. By the time Coverdale was ready to record the vocals, relationships in the band had soured. And this was when he decided to fire his new band. Very wise. You know, in my experience, an artistic
0: genius like David Coverdale, or myself, is best served by not getting too attached to the help. That said, John, you did a beautiful job conveying the high-wire international intrigue that was the writing and recording process for this album. Okay, so I'll take it from here. Let's talk about how the world, and Eric in particular, would never quite be the same after Whitesnake's self-titled album finally dropped, a rocky and complicated three years after its predecessor. Jesus. Yeah. Whitesnake, the album, was released in Europe on March 31st, 1987, and in the U.S. one week later on April 7th. Interestingly, in Europe, it was released under the title 1987, and that version had two extra songs. Regardless, this thing took off like a rocket. There were five singles. Still of the Night, Here I Go Again, Is This Love, Give Me All Your Love, and crying in the Rain. As previously mentioned, Here I Go Again made it all the way to number one, while Is This Love made it to number two, as the mega-hit Faith by George Michael kept it out of the number one slot. John, I included all of these except for Give Me All Your Love, which incidentally is a great song, and Is This Love, which is a very nice pop tune, but vibes more like a Tina Turner ballad than a pop metal song to me, so I didn't think you needed to hear it. On your playlist. What did you think of these delectable white snake morsels?
1: Uh.
0: Yeah? Uh. You know, like
1: crying in the rain? Not particularly. Oh my much. god, I didn't think any of these songs were bad. Yeah? None of these songs gave me the sort of visceral hatred reaction that some of the things you've made me listen to have, but uh, again, I wouldn't go seek any of these out except for maybe Here I Go Again. What about David Coverdale's voice? Doesn't he have some great fucking pipes? Uh. You don't like his voice? I don't dislike his voice. Hmm. This music just doesn't... This is not my cup of tea.
0: Hmm. All right. For the record, I very nearly used the song Crying in the Rain on our blues episode last season, because I think it's an absolutely perfect example of the blues metal subgenre. Uh, it's actually yet another re-record from Saints and Sinners. Hmm. Um, the other two songs, of course, they are stone classics. Just great, great fucking songs. You didn't you didn't love Still of the Night? Hmm. Okay, well, so between radio and MTV Play, White Snake were absolutely everywhere. And while they didn't manage quite Bon Jovi level business, White Snake made it to number two on the Billboard Top 200. Michael Jackson's bad helped to ensure it wouldn't quite make it all the way to the top of the charts. And it eventually was certified eight times platinum and sold well over nine million copies worldwide. Big money, no whammy. Okay, so John. What do you think? Shall we pause this recording and watch all three videos they shot for the album, which included Tawny Catane in slow motion? Or should we move this wild and woolly
1: carousel along? Let's keep going. I don't really want to spend any more time watching videos with you. After the
0: hand-holding incident, I'm okay with that. All right, let's move this along. Johnny M., my boon companion. I've got a confession to make. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I have a couple of confessions to make. Oh,
1: no. You know I'm
0: not ordained, right? (laughs) Now, first off, I really honestly, had not intended to cover Def Leppard's hysteria on Heavy Metal 101. We spent a lot of time on Def Leppard in season number two, despite the fact that the band doesn't much like being associated with heavy metal, and the fact that most metalheads have long since turned their backs on Def Leppard. And frankly, much as I appreciate their first two albums, and particularly High and Dry, I don't even like
1: Def Leppard all that much. Yet here we are, John. What the fuck is wrong with me? I don't know. You write this. I have no say in what we discuss. If you find this problematic, we do not have to proceed. We can stop right now and call it an episode. I don't think we can do that. (laughs) I can't do that. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. The second part of my confession is that in recent years, you know this. I've spent a ton of time sort of reevaluating all of like heavy metal classics. I am familiar familiar with how you spend your time. Yes. Yeah. 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 While doing that. I entirely skipped Hysteria. Even when I went back and re-listened to all of the heavy metal essentials from 1987, I just skipped this album. I had drunken the Kool-Aid. Drank? Drinked. 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 Sure. I had drunk the Kool-Aid. I, too, was writing off everything after 1983's Pyromania It's just too dang pristine and accessible to be dealt with as even pop metal. It's heaviness inflation, John. It's a real thing. Prepping for this episode was actually the first time I'd listened to all of Hysteria in many, many years. But we're still talking about it. Why are we doing it, John? I don't know. Because we must! (laughs) I mean, despite the revisionist history through which we tend to look at heavy metal in 2023, back in 1987, we all thought this was heavy metal. The seven, yes, seven, music videos from this album were absolute mainstays on the Headbangers Ball, and no less than Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet, Def Leppard's Hysteria was a huge gateway album for me personally, and I'm sure many, many others. Into the wonderful world of heavy metal. So fuck it all, we're going to end this episode with a controversial bang and discuss Def Leppard's Hysteria as the ridiculously successful pop metal classic that it was. So John, what do you remember about Def Leopard from our previous friendly chats?
1: Truly nothing. Not a thing. Truly nothing.
0: Good. That's on brand. So the basic specs are as follows. Def Leopard formed in 1976 in Sheffield, England. They started off as part of the new wave of British heavy metal with their 1980 debut album, On Through the Night, and with their more polished but still pretty new sophomore release, High and Dry, which also marked the start of their collaborations with super producer Mutt Lang. They broke huge in 1983 in America with Pyromania, a diamond-certified album that only didn't make it to number one on the charts because of stupid Michael Jackson's delightful thriller. The classic lineup, which was finalized towards the end of the Pyromania sessions, was Joe Elliott, vocals, Phil Collin, and Steve Clark, guitars, Rick Savage, bass, and Rick Allen, drums. Okay, that pretty much catches us up. Good? Yep. All right. We talked a bit about the rather fraught epic process leading to the entire band getting fired that led to the creation of White Snake's self-titled album. Hysteria's recordings, which started in February of 1984 and finished up in January of 1987, were also more than a wee bit complicated. We actually already discussed one of the principal complicating factors on this podcast. John, do you recall what happened on December 31st of 1984 that forever altered things
1: for the band and particularly for drummer Rick Allen? Was there a bus crash? Was this the bus crash, or was that a different? Thing? <laughs> that was Metallica. That was Metallica and a bassist. And, and a Blitberg. bassist. Ah, it was a crash, though. It, it was, was an automobile crash. crash. It was a, okay. Yeah. There was an act, there was a vehicular accident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what we discussed was how a car accident on that New Year's Eve led to the amputation of Rick Allen's arm. Mm-hmm. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Would yeah, be difficult for a drummer. You would think, right? So otherwise, you know, Def Leppard they were on the top of the world with Pyromania, huge album, like well, biggest number big- two in the world. Jackson! (laughs) Still, despite the challenges and delays it would entail, the band chose to stick with Alan after the loss of his arm as he learned to play a new modified MIDI kit that would allow him to continue to drum with one
1: arm. That's good. Yeah, right? That's that's the the right thing to do. Some good blokes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I have to ask then, would you stick with me after some sort of massive traumatic accident like this, or would you just move on?
1: I mean, let's put it this way. Uh If you lost an arm, and for some reason that meant that it was up to me (laughs) to write and produce Heavy Metal 101, Mm -hmm. the show would fully stop.
0: I would so love to hear an episode solely written and recorded by John. All right. Anyhow, further fun-filled delays were still on the horizon for Def Leppard. Mutt Lang actually managed to get himself into his own auto accident, and Joe Elliott eventually came down with a frickin' mumps. In 1986. The mumps? The mumps. What the hell is the mumps? It's like a disease that everyone gets vaccinated right, for. Right, as a baby. I don't know. As, as English. Infant. I don't know what the English were doing back then. Uh, it seems quite clear to me that God did not want Death Leopard to finish this album, no? I mean,
1: can you blame him?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: it's mean, not, it's not the best
0: album. But, darn it all, on August 3rd, 1987, more than three years after starting their recording process, Sweet Bouncing Baby Hysteria. Was born into this world, John. I gave you three songs to mull over: "Animal," mm-hmm. "Pour Some Sugar on Me," and the title track. Mm-hmm. Whatever did you think of this particularly popular subsection
1: of Hysteria? I did not care for "Animal" or Hysteria, mm-hmm. really at all. Those mm-hmm. were my two least favorite uh-huh. of the songs you made me listen to okay. entirely for this episode. Yeah. Okay, I mean "Pour Some Sugar on Me" is a classic. It's pretty undeniable, right? It's, it's a classic. Yeah, it's a great and it's got a pretty great
0: just sort of like groove that it falls in. So is this the song you felt was really a <laughs> metal song? This felt like, yeah. Okay. It's
1: just, I mean, it just sort of got this sound and this scream-along chorus. funk to it that I was like, oh. yeah, all right, I can get behind this. It's a great
0: song. I love Pour Some Sugar On Me. Was, I remember it vividly as like a gateway to metal. It was one of my favorite songs when I was a wee lad. Look, this album is very fucking polished. It's like gleaming, shiny, slick. Perhaps to a fault, though in 1987, this was the state of the art. I have personally always had a fairly complicated relationship with Def Leppard. Uh, They really were a very important gateway band for me, principally due to this album. But unlike Bon Jovi or Whitesnake, they were never among my very favorite bands. I don't hate Hysteria, but upon re-listening to it prior to this episode, I was mostly left lukewarm. The less familiar non-single songs, which make up literally the entire second side other than the title track, are all actually pretty lame. The singles, on the other hand, are pretty great. So I guess that we can agree, You, you neither you nor I love Hysteria. Correct. Yeah, yeah, okay. We're going to pause the podcast one last time, and we're going to see if we can't get ourselves into that very particular 1987 headspace by watching the video pour some sugar on me. Now, if that doesn't do it for you, there is probably little hope of you being moved by the rest of this album. John, pour some sugar on me, which, incidentally, is a sex metaphor. Yay! John, what did you think of that audiovisual experience?
1: I mean, you know, you had fun. It was
0: fine. Yeah. You seemed like you were in a good mood while we watched that. Sure, they seemed happy. You like? What about the
1: intro? The intro was fun, like dramatic with all the like. Well, I mean, we did point out that it's different from how the song starts, yeah. like on the album. Right. So that's interesting, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, I used to work for Ayatsi, so I appreciated seeing the kind of a load in of a show. Sort yeah, of very little behind the scenes yeah, kind of feeling. I mean, they all seemed like they were having a good time. They mm-hmm. seemed like happy people, and yeah. there were some bad hair choices. Bad, Bad haircuts, but good times. Yeah. Yeah, all right, fair enough. I think that could be a <laughs> solid metal history book title. <laughs> Bad haircuts, good times. I'm gonna keep that one in my back pocket. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna do. So I
0: have this very distinct recollection of watching this video when I was around 11. That's great. I don't remember
1: shit from that age. Yeah,
0: I very vividly remember this and thinking to myself, "Wow, like these are the guys that girls find most desirable in like all the world."
1: That's what you thought.
0: I really—that was I, your takeaway. That was my—I was—I just—I re- remember looking at Joe Elliott and thinking to myself, "Cause he's not—he's not like." He's not objectively extraordinarily good-looking, like, he's not an ugly yeah. guy or anything, but whatever. He's, he's not David Coverdale. David Coverdale, I think, is a very handsome man. Anyway, long story short, this was very, like, moving to me, the fact that this is what gets you girls. I, like I said, I think this is around the time I was, like, helped through puberty by... Heavy metal. But, I mean, the, the upshot of this is that 11-year-old Eric was already contemplating how this music might someday get him laid.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which I think was pretty smart. Okay. This is good stuff. So, I should probably say that, perhaps unsurprisingly, our good pals at Rolling Stone magazine, who pissed all over so much of the best metal we've previously discussed, they absolutely loved this album.
1: Did they? (laughs) They did. Wow. (laughs) Not a great track record. (laughs) Not a great track record.
0: Interestingly, the original Rolling Stone review was penned by none other than MTV News icon, Kurt Loder, who, among other things, wrote that, quote... Every track sparkles and burns. A weird thing to say. It's very poetic. Would you agree that every track that you heard sparkled and burned? No. You you don't think there was sparkling and burning?
1: I don't know that I would describe any of this music as sparkling. What about burning? Some of it burned.
0: I agree, some of it burns. The public apparently agreed that every track indeed both sparkled and burned, because aside from hitting number one in both the U.S. and U.K., Hysteria also hit number one in Australia, Finland, Norway, and New Zealand. In your ancestral home of Japan, it made it to number 12. I think it's fair to say that Hysteria made some waves. No, clearly people liked it. People liked it. Like its predecessor, Hysteria has been diamond-certified. But while Pyromania has sold but a paltry 12.1 million copies, current estimates have Hysteria having sold over 25 million copies. Which is a lot, right? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So while Eric and John don't love Hysteria, apparently
1: everyone else in the world does.
0: I guess we don't know things. Well, we know I don't know things. You definitely don't know things. I would expect more from me.
1: I just, uh, you know, I don't trust people. Yeah.
0: So... I mean, there are those who would suggest that the fact that it sold so many copies is indicative of the fact that it's not good. I don't, I don't buy that's that. That's a stupid argument. I think that's a stupid argument as well. I don't agree with that assessment either. Suffice it to say that just because an album sells a lot of copies does not intrinsically mean it is awesome. Fair. Okay, good. I think that that just about wraps things up. John, did you
1: have fun today? I had so much fun today. I also
0: had fun today. I mean, Bon Jovi, White Snake. Go, John. Yeah. We got to talk about David Coverdale's penis. That part I didn't like. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, If that's not fun, I just don't know what fun is. And for what I really and truly believe should be the last time on this podcast,
1: we talked about Def Leppard. We're done. No more Def Leppard. Eric. No more. Eric, I want you to look me in the eyes. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. If you don't ever want to talk about Def Look at me in the okay, eyes, okay? Okay. If you don't ever want to talk about Def Leopard again? Mm-hmm. We never have to talk about Def Leopard again. Do you mean that? I mean that. Okay.
0: I feel affected. I feel baptized in truth. Hopefully it will stick. I think it's time we remind our adoring fans of how they can help us to get the word out about the Heavy Metal 101
1: podcast. If you like this podcast, why not take a second to uh, go to social media and share an episode with your friends and loved ones, or, you know, help us out by giving us a review and telling people what you like about the show. Hell, even a negative review goes a long way to get people to see that we exist. Ooh. I mean, look, if you don't like the show, why did you listen to all four hours of this episode? (laughs) You have free will, you dumbass. (laughs) Anyway, any sort of a review would be much appreciated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Additionally, we are always thrilled to hear from you, either via social media, where we can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Uh Threads. threads. And are we are we? are on Threads. We are on threads. threads. Yeah. Of course,
1: by the time this airs, Threads <laughs> no will no more fully threads. be dead. <laughs> Shoot us a thread or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. We don't know what it is. We're fucking
0: old. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of being old, we're also kind of sort of on TikTok. Are
1: we? Yeah. What yeah. do we do on TikTok?
0: I don't. We don't, we don't do much. Are we dancing.
1: <laughs> no.
0: I'm hoping I'm hoping at some point you will
1: be dancing on TikTok. Oh, great. We've got a couple of
0: my stupid promo videos on TikTok. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I love the way you get to see an ad for an unaffiliated company at the end of those. <laughs> I,
0: I'm going to see if if, if maybe uh, I can improve our TikTok media presence at some point. Now, you can also reach us via email at Heavy Metal 101 podcast at gmail.com or... God bless. You can leave us a derogatory, dirty voice message, which we will most definitely play on the show via our Spotify for hey, podcasters. Okay. I just want heavy breathing, <laughs> dirty, dirty language. Anyhow, the link is in the show notes. Another day, another dollar. John, would you like
1: to give any? You're making bar? money. <laughs>
0: I make, I mean, I have, I'm gainfully employed. Okay. None, none, of, none of it is, comes from this fucking Okay, shit. all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Future seasons. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, any parting
1: words of wisdom for our tens of millions of beautiful, beautiful listeners? Don't stay up till 2 a.m. watching music videos. Sleep is important. Amen, sister.